0: you're listening to the cxmh podcast cxmh is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health
1: hey welcome back Welcome to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm a therapist and we are joined today as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, Professor of Social Work. Dr. Holly, how are you doing today?
0: (laughs) Hey, Robert. I'm doing well. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Yeah.
0: Yeah?
1: Yeah. Nothing too crazy.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, same here. It's It's been beautiful. The weather out here in Texas has been so nice lately, so I've been trying to enjoy it, yeah. you know, as I've been able to, but um, yeah. yeah, it's been a good, good week. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. You and Brooke, are you guys doing okay?
1: I'm trying to think if there's anything super exciting. I mean, mostly we're, you know, kind of planning, getting ready for Gray's first birthday party, which will be oh, pretty fun, yeah. so that's coming up here uh, pretty soon, so trying to kind of, you know, nail everything down for that, but... That's, I guess, the, you know, the main exciting thing. Um, yeah. Kind of the norm. But yeah, everything's going well.
0: That's awesome. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Man, that's good.
1: You're invited, obviously.
0: I was going to say, free. where's my invite? I haven't gotten it yet.
1: <laughs> I think, actually, I remember thinking, like, oh, I'm, I need to make sure to text this to Holly because we just, like, made a little picture and texted oh. it to people. And I don't know why I, I must, I thought, like, oh, m- m- remember to do that later. And then obviously I didn't, but. Here you no, go. in front okay. of everybody. Hey, you're obviously invited to Gray's birthday party. I'll send you the No,
0: tips. Oh, no, no, no. That's awesome. Sweet, squishy Gray. I can't Sweet, believe he's yeah. already a year. Yeah, oh, he's, my not, God.
1: he's not. He's still kind of squishy, but not as squishy, obviously. I
0: know. Yeah, well, but I know, like, even Oliver, he's three now, and I still see the little dimples in his hands, yeah, and, yeah. like, I still see him as squishy, so <laughs> y'all have a little while. Yeah. He really, really that squishiness, Yeah, but,
1: yeah, it's awesome. Oh,
0: so good. Yeah. Well, you want to shift in, tell our listeners a little bit about this week's episode?
1: Yeah. Why don't you tell us all about it? Because it's somebody that you have known for a while. So, uh, you know, give us a give us the lowdown.
0: Yeah, sure. The
1: dumb so way this- of saying that. That's fine. <laughs> tell us about the episode, Holly.
0: That's awesome. So this week we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth MacKingvale. So um, Liz and I had gotten our PhD together back at the University of Houston. And She's a good friend of mine, um, and I'm just so blown away by the great work that she's doing around advocacy and research related to obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, she joins us to talk a little bit about what OCD is um, and her own journey with OCD, and she gives us a tremendous amount of resources in this episode for folks to be able to walk away with, including um, her talking about her OCD challenge, which is a free resource, so I really hope our listeners enjoy this episode um, and walk away feeling like they understand a little bit more about what OCD is and what it isn't, you know, because we even also talk about some of the stigma and, and the yeah. ways in which this word or this phrase is so often used kind of nonchalantly, but yeah. um, how hurtful that can be. So,
1: yeah.
0: All right. all right. Well, without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Liz McInvale. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to the show. Um, Today, we are joined by Dr. Liz Mackingvale, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine. She is the founder of the Peace of Mind Foundation, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to obsessive compulsive disorder. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees in social work from Loyola University Chicago. And she and I received our PhD in social work together at the University of Houston. Um, she's currently pursuing her MBA at Northwestern University and engages in advocacy, clinical work, research, and teaching related to obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. She is a renowned speaker on both the local and national level, speaking on behalf of OCD, mental illness, and mental health stigma. And Liz, I am so excited to have you on our show today. How Thank are you, you doing? Excited to be here.
2: Doing well. It's it's a busy season. It's... Um this time of year always gets busy with May being
0: Mental Health Awareness Month, but it's all good stuff and great, great things happening. That's so, so great. Well, is there anything that I missed in your fancy bio? Absolutely not. No, that was. Great. <laughs> Thank you for all the credit. I, I don't deserve it. Oh no, no, you you work <laughs> quite hard. Yeah, no, as evidence in that bio, you you're doing a lot and and working very hard, and we are thankful. Yeah. Well, I want to start off today's conversation just by getting a general understanding about obsessive compulsive disorder and just OCD in general. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about you know, what this is and, and maybe being clear on what it's not as well Yeah. and maybe just sharing whatever you'd like to share about it, maybe the prevalence of obsessive compulsive disorder um, and some of the ways that it might manifest for folks absolutely
2: yeah so ocd is exactly what it sounds like obsessive compulsive disorder and it's really important that we recognize it as that as as three things right so obsessions which are unwanted intrusive thoughts these are not thoughts that the individual enjoys or that they get pleasure out of Followed by compulsions, so repeated activities that are bothersome. And again, the person doesn't enjoy these activities either, but they're doing them because they feel like they have to in order to get rid of that unwanted intrusive thought. And then the D is important too, the disorder is really important. You know, a lot of people engage in obsessions or have obsessions and engage in compulsions, right? So um, my brother-in-law, I use him as an example a lot, but he loves UT football, right? And he's he's a bit obsessive (laughs) about it, thinks about it, loves it, and, and is compulsive too, right? He goes to the games, he follows the scores, he has rituals around it. But it's not a disorder, right? It's not troublesome or bothersome to him. And it's not something he wants or needs to fix or change, right? It's something Mm. that he enjoys. It's a part of him. Yeah. And oftentimes society, when they think of OCD, we're thinking of it in the wrong way, right? We oftentimes it's used as an adjective. You hear people saying, oh my gosh, you should meet my coworker. She's so OCD or you should meet, you know, oh, this person's closet is unreal. They're so OCD.
0: That's yeah.
2: what OCD is. That may in fact be what obsessive compulsive personality disorder is, which is um, individuals who have personality or characteristics, uh, kind of this type A, right? We have things more meticulous. We have things a certain way. But again, those individuals will actually talk about the fact that they find enjoyment and pleasure in this, that that they like the way their closet looks after, that it makes them feel good to have this level of organization in their life. Mm that's not OCD. OCD is unwanted. It's disruptive and it's debilitating. It's one of the top 10 reasons people file for disability in the United States. It's one of the most chronic and prevalent mental health conditions affecting 3% of the population worldwide, which makes it more chronic and severe and prevalent than schizophrenia, bipolar, most of your major mental illnesses.
0: Yeah, man.
1: Yeah. And I I think that's it's really important because I do think a lot of the time we do hear it used in kind of this like offhanded way of this person is so O. C D or whatever. Yeah. And usually in terms of like, oh I like my books organized or, you know, things are oh I like it when my kitchen's clean. But those aside from not being like harmful like there's no problem with that there's like a logic behind them right like oh i can find things easier or i just like it better when it's clean uh, which isn't necessarily the level of like compulsion or obsession which is kind of what Mm -hmm. you're talking about so i think it is one of those that we somehow it's gotten into the language of using it kind of offhand which Maybe it is good cuz more people know the term but maybe it is also bad cuz it makes it harder to yeah. talk about the reality of this is a thing that I mean you said people file for disability like this is a very real thing that impacts people's lives.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: You know, it's a it's a disabling disruptive disorder and it's important that we recognize it as that and we we understand the severity that it can have for people who live with it. Um but I, I agree. You know, it's funny because People know the acronym. They didn't know the acronym years ago. So you're right. Maybe it's a good thing in that aspect. But it's also hard when we have to undo their beliefs and and try to change how people perceive or understand the illness.
0: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, and and ensuring that they're not being um, unintentionally harmful to those who really do struggle with this and really do you know carry this this heavy burden in a lot of ways of of this um, disorder and how it manifests and that really kind of links me to the next question. I know you have been so courageous in your ability to be transparent about your journey with OCD, um, including being diagnosed back when you were 12 officially. But can you tell us a little bit about your journey with OCD and kind of what that looked like when you were younger and, and as you got older and even feeling free to share some of what you know the role your family has played in your journey as well
2: absolutely you know um i grew up here in houston which is where i live now a uh, biggest medical center in the world some of the best healthcare accessible at our fingertips and so when i first started presenting symptoms i was about 12 years old and i started doing kind of typical ocd things so a um, lot of contamination rituals, a lot of engagement and, and excessive showering and ritualized hand washing and cleaning behaviors, and also scrupulosity, the religious form of OCD. So a lot of um, mm-hmm. excessive prayer, avoidance of wearing red and black, because I thought it was the colors of the devil, afraid of anything that ha- was associated with the number six, because 666 six, six is the number of mm-hmm. the devil, devil, et cetera, and lots of reassurance seeking. So asking my mom repeated questions and getting stuck in mundane activities, going in and out of doorways, things like that. And so pretty quickly I got a diagnosis. I will say getting a diagnosis was pretty easy here in town. I think that, you know, the, the profession knew enough about OCD to know that like, oh, this is OCD because some of my symptoms were pretty common and pretty obvious. The problem was, is that the diagnosis might be helpful, but the treatment wasn't. Um, Mm. most people didn't know how to treat me, didn't know what treatment would look like. And so I continued to face these roadblocks where uh, people would say, you know, we've never seen a case this severe. There's not treatment available. And my parents thankfully didn't buy that, and so they kept searching. You know, but it was a long road for me to get the treatment that I needed, and it was a lot of serendipity, a lot of um, I'd like to call it a faith thing, right? But a lot of different things that kind of randomly happened that for most people they would have given up or not been able to keep searching, and you know. I think that first of all, like the way I found treatment isn't the way people should find treatment. Treatment should be easily accessible and and easy mm. to understand and get to. But you know, the second part is what you what you kind of described in the second fold of me being able to potentially talk about my family's role is that you know I was so lucky to have family and have parents who were my advocates and you know, who really didn't believe what they were hearing, right, which is like, there's not treatment available, and your daughter's not going to be able to manage her illness. And so it, it was a battle. But every day, my parents held on to that belief that I could live a functional life and that I could manage my illness in a way and and still be successful. And a lot of people don't have that.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. I mean, it's both your, the ways in which you stepped into this and, and, and seeing that diagnosis, but also how your family has come alongside you. I mean, I know you've told me stories over the years, just of, of what that's looked like. And it's, I mean, you're, I mean, I'm just so grateful for your vulnerability and honesty and, and courage through this. So So it
1: sounds like, and I've I've watched a previous video where you were talking about things, but that taking a lot of that experience is part of what drives and how you got into the work you do now, right? Particularly, I would imagine, uh, you know, saying treatment shouldn't be hard to find. It should be easy and accessible and things like that. So I'm guessing a lot of that drives the work you do now?
2: All of it. Yeah. So what (laughs) happened is, is, you know, I left treatment when I was 15 and well, I had to go to Topeka, Kansas to get care. And that's where the Meninger Clinic was at the time. And I I left the clinic feeling excited and hopeful. I left feeling for the first time in my life, like I'd be able to go back home and do mm-hmm. everyday activities that I never thought I'd be able to do again, right? Taking a shower in 10 minutes, being able to wear whatever clothes I wanted from my closet, being able to get dressed. I mean, things that my OCD had taken away from me, these simple things that were such a, like a dream that I would be able to do again. And I left super grateful for that. I'm very excited about my future again. But I also left the clinic with this, like, we can call it like fire inside, right? Where I just, the fact that my treatment, getting treatment the way I had to get treatment. So my dad happened that we searched for care for three years. My dad happened to open, open the Houston Chronicle and see like a, itty bitty square about meninger, which eventually led us there, like the fact that all these random mm. things had to happen for me to even hear about the treatment that I needed. But more importantly, the costs associated. I mean, my parents have spent well over half a million dollars on my treatment throughout my life. And mm. most people Gosh. can never afford that. And so while I left the clinic, super grateful for where I was at, I also left with this, like, frustration and, and that turned into a passion of, I have to change that. Um, yeah. that a shouldn't be rare. It shouldn't be unique. This should be the norm and people should be able to get the treatment that they deserve. And so it absolutely changed my, my life in the sense of what I would do and, and what I do now. Yeah, no, that's good.
0: And I've, I've seen that. I mean, it's been uh, remarkable watching how you shifted and used this passion to, um, to go out and advocate for others and especially recognizing that cost barrier. Uh, so following that, there's a couple of things I, I definitely want to ask about. One is, you know, you in your work, you talk a lot about exposure and response prevention or ERP. I definitely want our listeners to hear a little bit about that and what it is and then linking that to um, some of the work that you've done to make treatment more accessible in some ways for folks, especially with that. The OCD challenge um, is what I'm thinking of. But tell us a little bit about both of those. Absolutely, you know. So when you're searching for treatment and you go to practitioners and providers
2: who shouldn't be treating you, um, it's one of the the kind one of the worst experiences you can have. You know what happens is you go there, you're vulnerable, you share your experience, you you're hopeful that they can help you, and they start doing treatment and modalities that. It, not only don't help you, but like, you're continuing to get worse. Mm. Uh, And what we know about mental illness is that when it's not treated appropriately, just like any condition, it will get worse, right? Imagine Mm. if, um, if you've got an underlying illness, yet you're trying to just kind of do some stuff on the surface, you still have to treat that underlying illness, right? The root cause and what's going on. And so I received a lot of bad care, and I continued to not get well. And a lot of times, it was people who wanted to help but who didn't have the resources, and and/or who believed they could help and really weren't capable of that. Um, and so, when I finally got to the Menninger Clinic and for the first time, I was exposed to evidence-based treatment—you know, treatment that is rooted in research that we know works and that is effective for this disorder. And of course, there's evidence-based treatment for most disorders. I—that's when my life really changed. That's when I realized wow, I can live a manageable life despite this diagnosis, and everybody with any mental health condition should have that same opportunity. And so for OCD in particular, we use exposure with response prevention treatment. It is a specific form of CBT. and um, It's a slow, systematic treatment model used to help you work through your fears, really. And so the short of it is we slowly expose people to the things that they're afraid of, And we ask them to not engage in the rituals, right? So people with OCD, a lot of people say, oh, you do exposure therapy. No, we do not. And exposure therapy doesn't work for OCD because Uh the reality is that people with OCD do exposures every day. If I have to get out of this room and I have contamination issues and I touch that doorknob, I've done an exposure. But if I walk down the hall and wash my hands, it's not an effective exposure at fighting my illness. Now the illness has been reinforced and the OCD will continue to live. We have to do exposure with response prevention. So we we touch the doorknob and we prevent the response of a hand wash. And so, you know, it's one of those things that the OCD community is really, really small in a way that is disturbing, right? That we all know each other. We know each other by name. Like I can tell you who a decent practitioner is pretty much anywhere that you live in the U S and we have to change that. And people always say, Hmm. well, how does it change? It, It changes everywhere. I mean, education has to change when we're training social workers when we're training psychologists when we're training master's level clinicians we need to be teaching them about evidence-based care for ocd and most and a lot of people in academia don't know how to treat ocd and so the broad dsm course they're not getting into the weeds you know and then these people go and practice and they may not know how and you know it's also a problem because there's far and few between that are ocd specialists and so very few OCD specialists are in rural areas or in areas outside of big cities with medical centers. And then of course, the third leg is the cost, right? When, when it's a limited amount of providers available, they can charge high amounts and you know, that's how they have to keep their businesses open. And you understand that, but it really prevents a lot of people from getting the care that they need. And so when I decided this would be my career You know, there's been a couple things that have been important to me that I'll never compromise on, and the first is that I will always find a way to serve as many people as I can, and that I will always keep speaking out about mental illness until there's not a stigma. And the service has been hard. You know, we get emails from people in sub-Saharan Africa who are still stoned to death if they talk about this illness. Individuals and. And people in, in Asia and India where the OCD is so stigmatized, you can't talk about it. You certainly can't get treatment. And so out of that, we created OCD Challenge, which OCD Challenge is OCDchallenge.org. And it's a free self-help website for OCD. We take individuals through every step of exposure with response prevention. So it's based on evidence-based treatment, evidence-based care, and it's free and accessible to anyone worldwide with internet access. We are now
0: live in wow. six and have over 4,000 users and it's wow that's awesome and so I think from what I remember too especially for our listeners who are hearing this so a this is a free resource that's incredible um and it's also something that I think you've shared that some it's not just individuals going through it but sometimes mental health care providers will work alongside their clients with this program too right
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So individuals
2: can use it, but so can mental health providers and so can both of them. So individuals have the option as they're doing their homework to click print this as a PDF and they can bring it in the session so that the provider can see what they worked on throughout the week and pick up. But also providers can certainly use it as a training mechanism for themselves, right? How do I appropriately treat someone with OCD? What does the process look like? And start to understand that by using the program. We also have, I have my nonprofit, Peace of Mind. You can go to mind.com or go to our Facebook page. And we do free online training of OCD treatment for practitioners. We do tons of webinars. We bring in leading experts from across the world for their content area. And so our what we we used to do a lot of stuff right here locally, like conferences and and different things. And we realized, you know, mm-hmm. we can't really help as many people as we need to help, and we've got to change that. And mm-hmm. so we've really shifted to this online format because it allows so many more people to be able to
0: listen, hear, and be a part of a community that's needed.
1: Gosh, that's so good.
0: Yeah. No, that's fantastic, Liz. I'm so glad that y'all are doing that. And I'm glad you mentioned peace of mind, too. Um, that was, is definitely something that I want to be sure that we'll link in our show notes along with OCD Challenge um, so that folks can have access to those resources um, and the things that you're doing. And I, I mean... I mean, but you're you're I'm just thinking as you were talking about other things that I know that you're doing right now. So like in the Houston community. Right. You just started, I think, working with KHOU. Is that right? with uh, with CW39. Yeah. Sorry. So forgive health- me. No, no,
2: no. No, <laughs> no problem. Yeah. I, so I'm their mental health expert on Monday mornings and we have a mental health segment every Monday. And then the thing I, I love the most is the first and third Wednesday of every month. I do live with Liz on my right? Facebook page at peace of mind. Yeah. And it's a great way for people with OCD to be able to submit live questions and be able to get advice. And I, I give it right there. But the other thing I'm super excited about is that since January, peace of mind, we've launched now an online support group. It's the um, second and fourth Mm -hmm. Thursday of every month at 7 PM central time. And you can go to my website, peace of mind.com and sign up there. But it's a live interactive online group where people can anywhere in the world access an OCD community and it follows a specific ERP based support group format so that they can get some help and they can start to work through their treatment, but they can also connect with others. And so it's, it's exciting.
0: Man, that so is good. so good, Liz. You're doing such good work. I love it. I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, I mean, one of the questions that that we had was for those who are listening, um, if they think that they might have OCD or if they know someone who does, do you have any recommendations for them, at least for initial steps of what to do or where to go or? I mean, I know you shared Absolutely. a lot of great resources, but but what
2: else would you say? Absolutely. So you can go to my website at peaceofmind.com to get some more information, general content, videos, and better understand OCD and OCD treatment. You can go to iocdf.org, which is the International OCD Foundation's uh, website. And it's a group that I serve on their board and we they do incredible work to help disseminate OCD knowledge. They have an annual conference this year. It's end of July as always this year. It's in Austin. So It's a great opportunity for professionals, individuals, and family members with OCD or who work in the field to really learn more and and learn from the leading experts. But most importantly, find an OCD specialist and get an evaluation. You know, sometimes when we think it's OCD, it may or may not be. uh, But more importantly, we've got to get specialized treatment and we need to have an appropriate diagnosis. And so you always wanna find an OCD specialist and go get a good assessment to make sure that's what's going on. There could be some other stuff going on as well, so we wanna know the full picture before you dive into treatment. But, but start with a good assessment. If you have a kiddo, start with an assessment at a medical clinic, a place like Texas Children's Hospital, if you were here in Houston, or you know, a, a children's hospital that has a psychiatric clinic or a psychology clinic, that they can go do an assessment. And once you get a proper diagnosis, make sure you get the proper treatment. Uh, people always say, well, how do I know if someone says they treat OCD? How do I know if they do? Well, it's it's super simple. You pick up the phone and you call and you say, hi, you know, I, I was wondering if you treat OCD, what treatment do you use? And if on their own, they don't say ERP, you say, thank you very much. And you move on because you will not <laughs> get better without the proper care.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's so important that's for people good. to hear because for a lot of mental health things, people say, Oh, I went to see someone and it wasn't very helpful. But knowing that you can say either beforehand or during, you know, you can say, Hey, what are you doing? Like what, can you explain what's happening? What, what do you call this? You know, and you're allowed to evaluate that and say, uh, oh, maybe somebody else would be more helpful. I think is good for people to know. Cause sometimes I think there's a perception like all oh, mental health clinicians do everything. And that's just not feasible even for clinicians and certainly not ethical on their part. So you're, you're, if you're in Bingo. a counseling setting, any kind of treatment setting, you can say, hey, what's, what's happening, right? Like that's, you're there to get better. So you're, you're more than welcome to do that.
2: It's your treatment, but yeah. more importantly, it's your life, right? Yeah. And you have to ask questions Questions, you need to be informed so that you can make the best decisions for you, for your future. And the reality is, is that I probably wouldn't have ever needed inpatient treatment if I had gotten proper care when I first showed symptoms and signs. But, you know, the worse, the longer we go without proper care, the worse our illness gets. And just because I have patients all day long that come in and say, I've tried treatment before, it doesn't work for me. Well, what treatment have you tried? Right. And if it's not the right stuff, it probably didn't work for you. So let's give the right stuff a try. And so what I'll say is that if you're listening and you struggle with a mental health condition, even if it's not OCD, just because you've been to a provider and you haven't gotten better, it doesn't mean there's not hope for you or help for you. Yeah, Um, Hope and help are always available. We just have to
0: advocate for it. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Man, that's good.
1: Yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Liz on Twitter or on Instagram, you can find her at E-M-C-I-N-G-V-A-L-E. We'll link all these in the show notes, obviously. Uh, Live with Liz is on Wednesday afternoons on her Facebook page. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert or on any social media at robertvor. And we will add links in the show notes for all the things that we've talked about here, including all those organizations and things like that. Liz, before we finish here, Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I know we mentioned some, like what are the first steps if you think you or someone else has OCD, but if you just had, you know, one final thought for listeners today, what would that be?
2: It's super simple. Hope and help are always available. Never forget
0: that and be your own advocate. Nobody else will advocate for your care like you will. Hmm. It's great. Oh, that's beautiful. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to get this time with you. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. I, I really appreciate you having me. But more importantly, I appreciate the voice you give so many people. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
2: Have Take a good care. day.
0: Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast.